As we begin our reading in Genesis chapter 35, God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God, the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come to you. And kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where he had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her her tomb, that is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher, these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Now Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. So the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. In my senior year, in the fall of my senior year, I, I rebelled against my parents, and I left home, and I ended up in a lot of different trouble. I ended up kicked out of school for a little while. I lost my job at the grocery store. Just my life was a wreck. It was a, probably the dumbest period of my life that I have to look back upon. And when I was doing some things and getting in trouble, my mom came and picked me up one day where I was, and just to tell me, she just looked at me and said, Greg, it's time to come home. She was right. It would have been a good time to go home, but I was still foolish, and I told her, no, I'm not coming home. And so uh, she tried to talk me into it for a few minutes, and when saw it was to no avail and dropped me off. 
So a little bit later, finally, I wised up through the help of some friends and stuff, and, and I did go home and resubmitted back to my parents' household rules and, and got back on a path that I should have been on to begin with. During that foolish time, you know, she, saw, she had the wisdom, and she, out of concern for me, came and said, you know what, it's time to go home. Well, the reason I bring that up is because that's what, kind of what we see happening with Jacob to an extent here today, is that God is bringing him home. Jacob left for fear of his brother Esau, because his brother Esau was going to kill him for stealing his blessing. And when he went to Padanaram, God met with Jacob at Bethel. And he gave Jacob this promise. He said, I'm going to go with you and I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bring you back safely. And Jacob says, well, if you're going to do all that, you're my God. I'll worship you. And he did. Finally, Jacob recognizes 21 years, 20 years later that it's time to go back. And so he, he goes to leave. And we talked about that last week, how he left Laban, the father of his wives, and he turned to, to head back. And he meets up with Esau, which he's afraid of, and then everything goes fine there. And then he doesn't really go as he told Esau he was going to either. He ends up staying by Shechem. He doesn't keep going down to Bethel. He doesn't go all the way back to his father's house. For some reason, he stopped at Shechem, and we don't really know why. But what's happening here anyway at this point, whatever his reasons were, is that God is calling him home. And that's what we want to consider this morning as we look at the life of Jacob and consider our lives as well, is what all is involved when God is calling you home. When we come to Christ, it's like, it's like coming home to a place you've never been, if that makes any sense at all. But you know, the Bible compares uh, even heaven as home. None of us have been there. None of us have seen it. But it's a place that when we get there, it's just going to be home. I remember the morning that I gave my life to Christ, I struggled with it. I struggled with it because I felt like, you know what, I'm good enough on my own. I'm good enough to stand before God. I'm good enough to go to heaven. And I wasn't. But in order for me to actually get to go to heaven, in order for me to actually have eternal life, I had to recognize that I could not make it on my own. And that's exactly why Jesus died for me. But come into that place where you recognize that it was a struggle. But here's the point. The moment I gave up the struggle, the moment I surrendered and gave it all to Christ, or maybe I should say got it all from Christ, it was like I just got home. It was home. You experienced that acceptance. You knew that now you were accepted. You knew that now you were home. And that's what we're considering as we're looking at Jacob here is God is, God is calling him home. When we talk about going home and comparing that to our life, we can be talking about our salvation. When we, maybe you've never trusted in Christ or got to that point where you put your faith or your walk in him and you need to make that first time decision. You need to come home to him. Or we can also experience it in this way that maybe we've been walking with Christ for some years and we've drifted or our, our relationship has grown cold or one sense or another that we've wandered off maybe into a path that we shouldn't have and we need to be brought back. Both of those ideas fulfill this idea of coming home. Well, as we look at Jacob here, there's some principles, there's some things that going home involves that we can see in his life that also impact ours. The first thing that going home involves is it involves a sacrifice. He says, I want you to go back to Bethel and build an altar. Now, this is not uncommon. Abraham went there and built an altar. Isaac went there and built an altar. Jacob has been there and built an altar. God says, I want you to go there and build an altar. Why? What do we do with altars? With altars, we offer sacrifices. And that's the first thing that God calls Jacob to is that sacrifice. We've seen a rich heritage of sacrifice all through the book of Genesis. It's all the way back at the beginning when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden. Once sin entered the equation, God clothed them. Something had to die in order to cover their shame, their guilt. 
Cain and Abel both bring an offering to God. Cain's is rejected because it's plants of the ground. Abel's is accepted because it's a blood sacrifice of a lamb, an animal. The innocent dying for the guilty. We see it when we get to Noah. Noah gets off the ark and what does he do? He builds an altar and he brings an offering, a sacrifice, and presents it before God. If you look at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it looks like they spent most of their life building altars and drilling wells. Because about every place that they, they moved to, they dug a well so they have water and they build an altar. We're seeing a pattern here, aren't we? The way to relate to God, the way to access to God is through sacrifice. And the reason that that is so important is because it's pointing to a greater sacrifice. It's pointing to the final sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. That's why we don't offer sacrifices anymore. Because one day when Jesus walked by the Jordan River, John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. That's why the book of Hebrews says that He was the once and for all sacrifice. Why once and for all? Because finally we have a sacrifice that actually did it. That actually accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. That actually paid for our sins. You see, an animal can't pay for the sins of a person. Even millions of animals can't pay for the sins of a person. But what they could do is picture the sacrifice of Jesus one day laying down His life for us. The struggle that I had in coming to Christ was I didn't know where Christ fit. I thought, well, God will accept me just because, you know, I'm a decent person. I haven't killed anybody. I'm all right. Nice to most people. I was good by my standards. Why wouldn't He accept me? But then, you know what, I realized I don't get measured by my standards. I get measured by the standards of a holy God. And I'd fall so short of those standards. All of a sudden, I realized where Jesus fits. He's the one that took my sin upon Himself and went to the cross so that I could have His righteousness in exchange. I have a sacrifice. I didn't make a sacrifice. That's not the point that I'm making. The sacrifice is not something that you sacrifice. The sacrifice is some, a sacrifice that is made for you. The first thing that God calls Jacob to as He calls him home is sacrifice. There is no coming home without sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not only does coming home involve sacrifice, it also involves separation. Because notice what happens here. Jacob rounds up the family. And what does he tell them to do? Pull off the earrings. Obviously these earrings had some connection to their idol worship that was going on there. But he said, give me your idols. Where did they get the idols? Well, idols probably came possibly from the people of Shechem that they were living around for a time. Uh, that's possible where that crept in. They made some friends and maybe and, and started to worship their uh, foreign gods. Uh, also from some of their heritage. Remember Rachel, it says, had taken one of the household gods of her father. So even Rachel has brought a god with her. Imagine that, having a god you can pack in your suitcase. She, she gathers all the gods and he takes them and he buries them. Underneath this tree, sometimes when they would bury somebody, they'd put them at the head of a tree, probably so the tree kind of acts as the marker. They're putting these things to death. They're burying those gods. They're putting those gods in a grave. They're getting rid of those gods. And you know what? That's exactly what God calls us to. He won't have a divided heart. He won't have us love Him and other gods. The Bible tells us that covetousness, the desire for things, is the worship of other gods. It's idolatry. When we put other things ahead of our relationship with God, those are idols in our lives. And one of the biggest idols that can be in our life is this concept of worldliness. 
that we operate by the world's principles and we look at the things as important that the world sees as important and we cling to the things that are like our possessions and our entertainments and our interests and those things end up trumping God in our relationship with Him. You know what God told Jacob? You, you've got to get rid of those things. And Jacob took all those idols and he gathered them and he buried them. And you know what? You would demand no less. In your relationship with your husband, your relationship with your wife, you're not content for him to have more than one of you. When we read through with Jacob marrying two sisters, weren't you offended by that? I was. Because I can't think, I can't imagine a marriage relationship having more than one wife or more than one husband or more than... That's an exclusive, intimate relationship. Well, that's the way God's relationship is with us. He's given us a lot of things to enjoy, but that should cause us to spring back to Him in worship and gratitude and adoration for the things that He's given us to enjoy. But the temptation is that in the things that God gives us to enjoy, that we get so focused on that that we forget all about Him. And that's idolatry. I love this passage in James chapter 4. It says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, here's my favorite part. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says... He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell within us. Now, I don't think that's talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. I think what that's talking about is our spirit, your spirit, my spirit. In other words, when God created us, God made us a spirit. We're not just this flesh and this body. In fact, in the passage that we're looking at, it says that as Rachel was dying, it says as her spirit was departing, because that's what happens when you die. Your spirit leaves your body and your body's dead. Now, It says the spirit that God has made to dwell within you, he yearns jealously for that. When your spirit is excited about other things, God is saying, I wish their spirit was excited for me. I wish in their spirit they were in love with me rather than being in love with this other God in their life. Rather than being in love with this other activity in their life, this other person in their life. There are so many things that can be gods in our lives. And when we forget about God and get so focused on these other things that our spirits are aching toward those things and have grown cold toward God, God says, I am jealous. I yearn for that. Can you imagine that? That you have that kind of an impact on the heart of God? But that's what we have. And that's why God says, come on home. But to do it, you've got to bury those idols. I'm not going to share you. I love you too much to share you. It involves that separation. But not only does it involve a separation, it also involves status. God says, no more are you called Jacob. Remember, Jacob meant deceiver. We've gone over that enough. Israel doesn't even go into what it means. He's just given him this new name. Now, he's already done it. A couple chapters ago, we saw that he told Jacob, your name's not going to be Jacob anymore. Now you're going to be Israel. You're going to be the one who wrestles with God, the one who strives with God and man. And so he'd given him this new name. And now he does it again. He just repeats the same thing. What is he doing in that? He's given him a new status. He's given him a new position in this. Or maybe I should just say he's renewing it at this point. Because he's already given it to him in the past. He's told him, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to bring you back to your home, protected and blessed. He left with nothing. He's coming back with 11 kids. He's going to have his 12th one while he's there. Or actually, we know it'll be 13 kids because of Dinah, his daughter. But he's coming back with 12 sons that are going to make up the 12 tribes of Israel. He's coming back with all these possessions and wealth. He's a great man in that sense now. And he's coming back with everything that God promised him. And God says, look, you are Israel to me. This is your status. You're the chosen one. 
You're not that old Jacob the deceiver anymore. He elevates his status. Do you know what? That's what happens to us in Christ. You know, it's a sad thing when you look around the world, you see so many people pursuing fame and pursuing position and that kind of stuff. You know what? You can, you can have the status that will satisfy your heart in Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, the moment you put your faith in Christ, you've got a whole new status. The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you move from becoming a sinner under God's judgment to becoming a son of God, a child of God, both adopted and born into the family. I remember that morning when I put my faith in Christ. I was so busy holding my own status. It dawned on me at the very beginning of the church service. I don't even remember what was said, but I realized that I was lost. I spent the whole rest of that church service trying to talk myself into the idea that I was, I was just fine before God. I didn't need anything. Trying to hold my own. Trying to stand on my own two feet. But you know what? As soon as I surrendered, I got a whole new status. Trying to stand on my own two feet, I couldn't do it. But Jesus could hold me up. He could give me that status before God. I was a new creation before Him. Well, and then lastly, it involves significance. Because he goes on with Jacob. He tells him now, go, go and be fruitful and multiply in the land. Fill up this place. Manage it. You know, we've seen that repeatedly, haven't we? We've seen it back in the garden. That's what God told Adam and Eve. Then he ends up destroying the world because of the flood, because of the wickedness of mankind. And Noah gets off the boat. God tells Noah, go out, fill up the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. We see it repeated. He keeps telling Abraham, you're going to have descendants like the sand of the seashore. You're going to have them like the stars of the sky, like the dust of the earth. We see it repeated over and over. What do I see in that statement? I see purpose. God says, I've got something that you are going to accomplish. I've got something that I'm going to do through you. Remember, he told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the whole world is going to be blessed through you. And so God has a plan. God has a purpose for these people. And you know what? That's what we desperately need in this life. We need to recognize that we have a plan, that we have purpose. I think if our generation would recognize, or maybe the generation coming up under us, if you would recognize your purpose, I think your generation would see a lot less drug addiction, a lot less drug use. Your generation would see a lot less suicide. You'd see a lot less murder, a lot less crime, a lot less if you just recognize purpose. But here's the challenge. You've got to do it in the middle of a society that always tells you that you're a cosmic accident. You came from nowhere. You're going nowhere. You're an accident on this planet. And when your life is over, it's all done. Try to make purpose out of that. Very difficult. But you know what? Purpose is a fundamental need of the human heart. Uh, Viktor Frankl, I was reading a book by him a little bit yesterday. He made this statement. He says, life is not primarily a quest for pleasure, as Freud believed, or a quest for power, as Alfred Adler taught but rather a quest for meaning. Now, Viktor Frankl is not just a guy sitting behind a, a desk in the, in the Ivy Leagues producing documents. Viktor Frankl is a guy that, as a young person who was committed to studying, and I think just getting going on his idea of logotherapy, he was a brilliant mind, but he lived in Austria. And it was just before America got involved in World War II. He had just gotten permission to come down to the consulate in Vienna and to get his visa to go to America now, if he goes to America, he can study and continue to make his contribution to mankind. His parents, upon finding out, were excited that he would be getting out of Austria as Hitler was soon to threaten it. 
And so he would be safe. But Victor was concerned about what would happen to his parents. And he was wrestling with this idea, should I go to America and delve into my studies or should I stay home with my aging parents that are going to go to the concentration camps eventually? And he was wrestling with the idea and one day he noticed in their home there was a little marble piece and this little marble piece had a letter on it. And he asked what it was and his father told him, he said that was part of the synagogue that had been destroyed by the socialists They had a marble tablet that the Ten Commandments were written on. And there was just one letter on this piece of marble from the Ten Commandments on there. And he said, that is an emblem for one of the commandments. And he said, well, which commandment? And he said, honor your father and mother so that you'll live long upon the earth. And he said, at that moment, my mind was made up. I would stay and honor my parents, even though they wanted him to go to America. So I would stay and honor my parents, come what may, on the land. Well, Viktor Frankl would end up living through many different concentration camps. He'd be thrown into concentration camps, moved from one concentration camp to the other, and it's a uh, miracle that he survived uh, that situation. And it's partly through that experience that he recognized the deep need in people's lives for meaning. He said, you know what? You can experience and even progress in the horrors of a concentration camp if you can find meaning in your life. And that's why he made this statement. He said it's not about pleasure. People pursuing pleasure would have died long ago in a concentration camp. They would have given up hope. And he even described what it looks like when somebody gives up hope in that situation. He said it's not for power. In a concentration camp there's no hope for power. But he said, you know what, in any situation you can find meaning. And he recognized meaning being such a such an important part of our experience. When I look all through the Bible, I see purpose and I see meaning. Everything that we do, we're to work for Christ and not for men. We're to bring honor and glory to God. We're to be reaching out to other people. And there is purpose and meaning in our lives. Why? Because we and others are made in the image of God and it just provides that scenario for meaning. I remember a while back, I was looking on YouTube and I found this old guy in kind of a big uh, turban. On his head, and he was imparting wisdom to these college students, uh, one of the Ivy League schools out on the East Coast, if I remember right. I remember watching that video, and it was sad, actually. It would be funny if it wasn't so sad. But you have all these college students gathered with this guy to glean the wisdom that this guru has. I, I forget what his name was. Something guru, he called himself. The first question, the very first student that got to ask a question, says, how do you know your purpose? And you know what the guy told her? You have no purpose. It's a fluke that this planet or any of us are even here. Get over yourself. Go live your life. I found tremendous irony in that. Because if if there's no purpose, what's he doing talking to a bunch of young people? Why would he do that if there's no purpose? Why? Obviously, he feels like he has some wisdom to impart to the next generation. If there's no purpose, then why? why? Why are these people going in debt for Ivy League educations if there's no purpose? Why are we bothering with education at all if there's no purpose? I mean, the, the, the questions are limitless. But you know what? There's another one. If there is no purpose, why do we hunger for it? Why is it such a strong appetite within the human art? Think about it. You've got Ivy League bright students gathered around this guy that's supposed to be imparting wisdom to them. And the very first question that comes up is, how do I know my purpose? If there is no purpose, then why is the desire there? Everything else that we have a desire for, there's things there. 
Right? I, I get hungry, and there is such a thing as food. There's a reality that corresponds to my desire. If I get thirsty, there are things that I can drink to satisfy my thirst. If I need social interaction, there are relationships and friendships that can satisfy my need for social interaction. If I need to learn, there's knowledge. If I need to achieve, there's work. We have desires in sexuality, and there is sexuality. In other words, every appetite that we experience in the whole world has a reality that corresponds to the appetite, a way that that appetite can be fulfilled. Except, apparently, for this idea of purpose. You know what? The reason that we hunger for purpose is because we have purpose. You have purpose. Your life is meaningful. In fact, your life can be meaningful not just for now, but for on into eternity, depending on what you do with it. But we have meaningfulness. We have significance. You know, young people will pay attention. Very closely, because you know what? That's exactly why you want to know, why do my parents make me go to school? Why do they make me do my homework? Why do they make me do my chores? You know why? Because your life is significant. Because you're valuable. You mean something. You're made in the image of God. And your life is important. And it can make a difference. And the reason your parents put you through a lot of things that you may not like is because they want your life to be great. Even the things that you enjoy. When I look back at my, my childhood growing up, and my dad started a lot of sports uh, teams and stuff in our, in our town, and I can see very clearly now, looking back at it, and the same reason that I did it with my children, is even the things that I enjoy, like the sports, and, the, and even, even going to work at a job. I enjoyed working when I, when I was old enough to get a job. Even those things have an agenda within them that is greater than the event itself. Our principal of our Christian school down in Oatana, when they were trying to decide whether or not to have organized sports, he said it will help our young people to win with humility and to lose with dignity. In other words, there was a deeper value to the sport than just the sport itself. And the same with work, the way that you approach work, the way that you approach relationship, all those different things in your life, the way that you approach them has a deeper meaning than the thing itself. If you get caught up in the thing itself, it'll be shallow. If you recognize the principles underneath it, it will strengthen you. So you see, even the things that parents put their children in that are seemingly just for fun are not just for fun. They're to build character traits within your life. And you know what? Your life has significance. Your life has meaning. And that's exactly why your parents worry so much about you as well. You know, I remember my mom and dad, and I, I got involved in some alcohol use and stuff like that for a while, and my mom and dad were concerned about that. Why? Because it'll ruin your life. You know, I think of, of uh, Proverbs. Proverbs 31 is a mom writing instructions to her son, and her son's a king. It said, It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. You see what her advice is to her son? She's telling her son, Look, you stay away from alcohol. And she says, here's the reason. Your life's too valuable. Your life's too meaningful. You know who can take those things? Let the people that are about to die take them. Use them as painkillers. It it actually has a benefit there. Let the people who have no life get caught up in that. Your life is too important to get caught up in that kind of thing. And young people, that's exactly why your parents are so worried about your participation in those kinds of things. is because it will ruin your life. And your life is too significant, too important to throw away on something as foolish as that. You see, we have significance. We have meaning. He told them to continue to grow and to build this 
promised people that are around him. You know what? We have the same challenge. We have the same command. In Matthew 18, he told his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What has he just told us to do there? Same thing he told Jacob. Go out and continue to grow. Build this promised people. So Jacob was going home. You know, if we stray away, God pulls us back home too. If we have never been home yet, God's pulling us home. What's that involve? It involves sacrifice. But Jesus has made that sacrifice for you if you put your faith and trust in Him. It's already there. He's ready and waiting. It involves separation. You have to repent from your sins. You have have to turn away from those idols that take possession in our life. God's not going to share you. It also involves status. We get to be a new creation, a new beginning in Jesus Christ. And that new beginning is a life of significance.